I suppose it's a systemic ageism, mm. which is you've had your life and therefore somehow you don't have the same value as, as others in society. Hi, I'm Toby Ellie Osman, founder of Smooth Digital, and this is Tea with Toby, the podcast that shines the light on the care sector and helps businesses, staff and care workers provide the very best care. The past year has been the most challenging in the history of the care sector. The UK care industry has experienced over 20,000 COVID-related deaths. Dozens of staff have died. Last June alone, nearly all of the COVID-19-related deaths were in care homes. So we decided for season four, we want to shine a spotlight on 2020. We wanted to look at the timeline of events, analyze why 2020 was so difficult, highlight the incredible people who saved care and understand what needs to be done for the care industry going forward. In the upcoming season, we will hear from carers, academics, CEOs, industry leaders and analysts. We will get a first-hand account of life on the front line. We'll review the effectiveness of the government's response and we'll discuss how the care industry has changed by the pandemic, what we can do to protect the sector for 2021 and most importantly, we will hear how the industry stood together in times of illness and social distancing with solidarity and compassion. Please join me in this very special season of Tea with Toby. On this week's Tea with Toby, I'm pleased to be joined by the Chief Executive of Methodist Homes MHA, Sam Monaghan. Methodist Homes MHA is the largest charity care provider in the UK, and Sam has led the organisation since 2018. In this episode, Sam explains to me the real heartbreaking impact of social distancing in care homes what kind of sacrifices carers made throughout the past year. And I asked him what he meant when he said the pandemic was a social injustice. But first, let's hear how Sam began his career in care. Sam, great to have you on the show. Good to see you. Awesome. So what we're going to do is we're going to jump straight in. And I just want to um, ask you just a little bit about your background. How did you get into the care sector and your previous uh, work history? Uh, I basically have been in social care. Um, for about 30 years, uh, working for the first kind of 27 years in the children's social care sector for local authorities and then for Action for Children and Bernardo's. And then uh, the job came up of CEO of MHA. And uh, I initially was somewhat hesitant because it was a different age group. But actually, I went out and I saw the people in the homes. I saw the kind of services that MHA delivers, the quality of the staff, and I was just blown away by it. And it felt like a really good opportunity to be part of crafting with those people the next stage of their journey. Beautiful. So I would love it's It's been a challenging sort of 12 months. And I'd love just to let the audience see from your perspective the order of events in terms of a timeline. So if you can just come back to me, let's rewind to around December of uh, 2019 now, what was happening in the care sector from your perspective and what was on the agenda at MHA? Yeah, so um, last December, uh, we'd had our new strategy in place for almost a year. We were really building on our services, working more cogently and coherently together to yield better results for our residents and our members. We were starting to look at how we can further enhance later life for older people through a range of additional services we were exploring. And we were also involved in conversations with the sector more broadly and with the Department of Health about what can we do to reform the adult social care sector. Successive governments have made the promise that they're going to look at it and address it, but it's never been done. And you've got this real challenge of a, a hugely diverse set of providers out in our sector, um, a whole range of services right from kind of um, community support, you're trying to reduce isolation, through then to uh, help in the home, to try and help people live independently, through then to care, care homes and residential homes um, for older people. And the full cost of that, the full implications of that just weren't seeming to be recognised. And so we were starting to have those conversations uh, more acutely because of the new administration that was coming in under Boris Johnson to try and really 
create some change and get a, a better response societally for people in later life. Mm, there's a lot that was going on back then. So yeah, it was already a busy and, and packed agenda. And I, I think one of the things I would say is that, you know, it felt like we were already under huge pressure. I mean, we, you know, our sector has got staffing shortages of around 112,000 people. So mm. we, we've got huge pressures already on the sector as well as financial, also the workforce. Um, so yeah, lot of, lot of stuff already going on. So when was the first time you heard the words COVID-19 and what did you think about it at that very point? Um, point? I suppose I would say I was like the rest of us. Uh, you know, you heard it on the news, you heard what was happening in Wuhan, you saw then the kind of trickle and progress um, out into other countries. Um, particularly, I think the a moment for me was when it clearly came to Italy and that started to really have an impact there. Um, and so at the start it was there, is this like SARS or MERS before it in terms of, 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 a, of a really bad flu infection? Um, it seems to be very potent and powerful. I think the other messages we were clearly picking up, which were worrying in our sector obviously, were that it, it was seeming to have a very devastating effect on older people and people with a range of existing health challenges. So we knew from the outset that this was problematic. I think the thing that we didn't know was how different would it be that this virus would affect different countries because of either the health infrastructure they had or because of the way that they lived their lives, the way that their communities worked. And I suppose that was the bit that you know, when it started out in Wuhan, it seemed a very different cultural context. You then weren't sure how it was going to play through. But then when it clearly hit Italy, you started to think, oh, my goodness, this is big. This is coming. This is no kind of particular respecter of cultural boundaries or norms or, or anything like that. Um, and so, yeah, we, we started to get increasingly worried, I suppose, particularly through January as, the, as that impact in Italy was taking place. So moving on down the timeline to sort of January, February, what was the climate like in the company? I think I would say that we were in a lot of conversation with peers in the sector, other organisations who provide similar services to ourselves, talking to people like Care England and the National Carers Forum about how uh, concerned people were, what people were doing in relation to that. We started to have some conversations with um, the Department of Health and Social Care in relation to the hospital pressures that were likely to be experienced and what role our sector might play in terms of alleviating some of those pressures um, with people coming out of hospital. Um, and I think there was a general alertness to, I mean, we already have really good infection control and management policies and procedures and practices in our homes. We're used to dealing with flu when it comes around on its kind of like annual or biannual cycle. So we, you were operating within that. I think what was different and, and difficult was we had a limited understanding and then there was a lot of conflict in the press around were masks, you know, were face masks, help, masks helpful? Weren't they helpful? What was the uh, impact of, uh, you know, did you need to have gloves on all the time? Did you need to have full aprons? What was the context that people were going to be required to do? And I think, it felt like Public Health England and government weren't that far ahead of all of us in having those conversations. And I kind of appreciate just how difficult this was. This, this came so fast. And um, during January and then into February, we were already starting kind of weekly, um, several times weekly meetings to look at, okay, what, what do we know? What can we pick up from what's happening in government? What's happening in public health? What's the kind of messages? Because we cover England and parts of Scotland and Wales. We were trying to pick up, you know, did anybody have more information than anybody else that we could try and draw on to try and clarify how we best protect and prepare ourselves for this? And that kind of led through into the beginning of March when I suppose we were on a a war footing for want of a, of a better phrase, um, really alert as this was starting to happen and the um, cases were coming, starting to come into the country. And we uh, took a decision because there seemed to be a level of prevarication around, do we close our homes? Do we keep them open to visitors? 
so that we've got these kind of almost um, uh, an airtight pocket to try and prevent the, the virus from coming in. There was a lot of conversation going on in amongst providers about when are you going to do this? The government aren't saying, are we going to jump before the government says what what's going to happen? And it, so at that point, what was there any government guidance at that point, just before like leading the, into March? The, the guidance was around infection control and management policies. Mm. There wasn't guidance around um, stopping visiting. There wasn't guidance around um, what was going to happen in terms of uh, any testing. They were starting to talk generally about you know, track and trace type systems and, and what have you. And I think those from memory were starting to happen in a small way in some other countries, but there wasn't any clarity. And so in the end, on the 17th of March, we took a decision that we would um, stop all um, people, visitors, and except non-essential healthcare professionals coming into our homes to try and limit mm. the risk of um, people uh, visitors, um, family and friends of our relatives, of our residents rather, coming into the home and potentially bringing the infection in uh, with them. And also we started to um, become very circumspect around uh, asking if anybody who was being um, discharged from hospital um, had been tested for the virus, because mm. the last thing we wanted was the virus coming into our homes. So we took the decision to, to close our homes to external visitors. By that point, you know, we'd already got signage around all our homes about additional hand washing, um, around um, kind of you know, keeping distance, uh, all the kind of preliminary messages. It was, it was very much around personal cleanliness and, and taking care to, to do that to begin with. Um, I mean, it's, it, I have to say, uh, Toby, it's really hard like this year, this last 10 months feels like kind of mm. 10 years in some respect. And so going yeah. back and trying to remember the sequence, because I remember colleagues saying, kind of, we're getting, we're starting to get guidance from government kind of like several times mm. a day and actually trying to distribute that. We've got 90 care homes and yeah. um, 34 uh, independent living settings with care. And so trying to get that information out was at, at pace, was an industry in itself. And so we closed down, I think the, Boris Johnson made his announcement on the 23rd of, no, uh, of March. Um, and so we closed down a week before the government told us to, to close down and we went into, into lockdown. Um, and so, yeah, we, we uh, found ourselves in this situation where we were then trying to make sure that we had sufficient stocks, particularly of PPE in the early days, um, to try and uh, ensure that our staff could operate in as uh, appropriate and safer manner in terms of managing that infection control. Mm, so at that time, you were, if I'm getting the numbers right, roughly about two years into the role. Uh, yeah. Um, how challenging was it to be put in that situation and to effectively manage a crisis? I mean, several things, I suppose, I, I count myself fortunate in. My career in, in childcare has often been around child protection and mm. around risk management in that context. And what you'd got was, I suppose, the mother of all risk management situations arriving on mm. your doorstep. So in that sense, that, that wasn't unfamiliar in terms of managing risk. I was then incredibly fortunate. We've got a really um, diverse spread of skills in MHA. And I got two of my colleagues who'd been involved in the public sector in setting up what's called gold command it's kind of like the emergency response scenario that you get in all public bodies police fire social care hospitals when anything major happens and you normally have it just for the period of a of an incident that took place i suppose you know horrifically like grenfell or when you've got a particular air calamity or, or what have you so we we set up gold command immediately on the 17th and that basically happened um, three times a day where you would get all the senior um, leaders and managers in our organization together to review where things were at. Um, we set up a database right from the get go so we could monitor exactly what was going on in all our homes and schemes so that we could look at how much PPE we had, where we needed to get PPE to in terms of mm. making sure that they'd got sufficient and to try and look as well at other things like hand sanitizers, soaps, all the kind of practicalities that you would need to make sure that you were as safe as you possibly could be. But it gave us a window right from the beginning of how this was starting to impact 
across the organization. And I suppose what was really um, concerning, overwhelming, um, kind of don't cut it, but it was just a very random way it seemed to be cropping up all over the place. It, it wasn't mm. like you'd got centers where it kind of moved like a wave or a ripple out. So you could you could kind of get people on a on a uh, a footing to to anticipate. Everybody had to immediately anticipate that this was going to happen. And I think because of the level of concern, you immediately were as well getting kind of guidance saying that in terms of people coming into homes, um, although we kind of locked down from visitors, we we had still um, had the facility to allow people to come in if their loved ones were dying. So clearly you want to make sure that you know, you use PPU, you use all the kit you can, but the guidance to begin with from government because of the level of concern was that people couldn't go in and see their loved ones. So I suppose we started to hear these very tragic stories where our member of staff was in a room with um, an elderly person who was dying and their wife was outside the window and she was on the phone and she was talking, you know, with the assistance of the, the care member of staff to her husband. And then mm. one of the uh, relatives passed through a kind of handkerchief that she'd sprayed her perfume on that she'd always worn. So her husband could smell that and have some measure of intimacy um, in his last moments. But, you know, what people were going through, what our residents and their families were going through, and then what our staff were going through in terms of the considerable number of losses that was happening but also in terms of the care that they were seeking to provide because at that point as well <laughs> sorry you've set me off on a roll here but but, no, but at yeah. that point as well the hospitals were starting not to accept people coming in if they were poorly because they didn't want to bring contagion into hospitals but that meant our staff and fair enough in your if you're in a nursing home but you know about a third of our homes are just residential homes, so they don't have nurses in. So you'd got care staff and managers who were providing um, end of life care um, for people who were very poorly um, in their homes and seeking to cope with both the physical and the very acute emotional impact of that, as well as the fear and concerns of staff generally <clears throat> and other relatives as well as their residents of, um, uh, is there any way of preventing this? Because obviously there was nothing to, to stop it. There was no vaccine yeah. that could mitigate some of the worst excesses. Um, and so you tended to feel that um, you were doing everything you knew how, and still it was kind of coming in because clearly our staff lived out in the community. They were taking all the precautions that they could, but if it was out in the community, the chances are that they could also catch it and they could bring it into, into the home. We limited the number of staff um, wherever possible. We used bank staff when our own staffing was too stretched. We occasionally had to use agency staff, but mainly on a block booked basis. Um, because what you were trying to do was just limit the number of contacts that anybody in a home could be having and asking our staff to kind of limit their lives outside of work to try and prevent the risk of them catching it and then bring it into our, our home. So there's so much in what you just said. And no, no, no I just want to, I just want to uh, just illustrate it a little bit. So there's a lot going on and let's talk about the residential homes that you mentioned where there's care staff there. How do they prepare for the unknowable in the situation like that? I mean, clearly there's a huge role for our managers and the leadership teams within each of those homes to try and support their staff as best possible. Um, but there's only so much you can do when something is, is not just local, this is national that's happening. And um, what I would say is each of our homes are, they're very much like a community of their own. Um, you know, people refer to the residents as kind of like their second family. Um, there's that level of, because it's not like a hospital where you're caring for a person for an acute period of time, say seven, 14 days or, or whatever. 
your these people live with us it's their home and they may live up to five ten years sometimes with us um and and they're part of the furniture and the family that 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 is that home and so you're not just talking about a kind of um brush brushing acquaintance with people these were people mm. who people were acutely fond of and were um you know sometimes being taken within 24 hours of catching the virus so the downhill trajectory for some people when they caught it was really really sudden um and again this could vary so in some places it seemed that people would almost kind of make a slight recovery but then they would wane again um some people were coming through um we had a a, a lady who was a hundred and um mm. uh, she was kind of put onto end of life with it but rallied and came through um and so it was you know phenomenal but it was so difficult to predict and so our communities because they're they're very much communities in themselves were very supportive to one another and workers really supported each other through all of this and managers likewise and as an organization we tried to give voice to their experience on an ongoing basis both internally but also externally so we made a decision to tell the story of one of our homes in the guardian um, a reporter contacted us and, and and we were able to and i think it made people feel that somehow what they were doing was understood a little bit more what their experience was was understood a little bit more um and i tried we tried to talk about that because of the pressures that the the sector were under um more and more in terms of of lobbying in relation to that so i think our staff coped as well as they could and and what i would say is as well that mha has over the course of the pandemic developed a kind of well-being um set of services for its staff um, we already had some well-being services in place but we've now got a four or five step model where you know initially you could just kind of get a bit of advice off you know some sites that we'd, we'd got that develop you know what to do if you're not coping talk to your manager all those kind of things to then moving through to here's some exercises that you can do to try and help you kind of cope with the, the stress that you're experiencing then to here's some counseling um, that we can offer to you then there's some ptsd type counseling that we can offer to you and the whole team because often teams would want to come to terms with what they've been through together it wasn't a thing that just happened to you on your own it happened to you as a as a as a community um and now we're we're investing in uh, the samaritans are coming in to help us have our have the conversations more with our staff to really elicit what it is that they're going through i mean we're in the caring profession anyway but you can never mm. You know, you don't want people sitting on feelings at a time like this. You want people to be able to express those because otherwise those feelings are going to come out somewhere. Um, and, you know, these people have got all on holding it together. But what what a workforce um, we have, and I'm sure every provider would say it, but, you know, what I've seen of our workforce going above and beyond has, has just been incredible. We had We had managers moving into homes and stuff like that. It doesn't surprise me to hear MHA carers went above and beyond. I wanted to know more about this, but coming up later on the show, we discuss how the lack of testing led to surging cases. Sam explains why the pandemic was a social injustice. And I asked what the past 12 months has taught him about compassion. But first, I wanted to know more about the sacrifices carers made in the past year. You know, we only see what the media shows us, but what was what were some of the real sacrifices that some of the care staff made during that period? Yeah, I was talking every week. I would talk to about four or five of our home managers on the phone or Zoom them. Um, and um, I talked to one of our managers. I think she was down in Falmouth. And she said, yep, we've made a pact, me and my two deputies. Um, we've got our cases. They're all packed. They're here. And as soon as it happens, we've committed that we're going to move in um, and we're just going to make sure that we are here kind of 24-7 um, between us, making sure that people feel safe, that our staff feel as safe as they possibly can. And that happened in, in numerous places across the country. Um, mm -hmm. We had um, staff, um, you know, recognise you, you kind of uh, at varying points, the pressure on the number of staff, because you had staff going off who were poorly. You had staff going off because they were self-isolating because either somebody in, they'd come into contact with people in the home or people in their own family 
were um, affected by uh, or infected by the virus. So you'd got a huge number of staff off. So staff were covering for each other in terms of working additional hours and shifts. They were, um, where our bank staff were coming in and supporting them incredibly. Um, you'd got people, um, you know, you, you got managers who were going, okay, we we could do the, the set meal tonight, but as a team, we're going to have pizza. Let's order in pizza mm. and get the pizza brought in or the fish and chips or whatever, or the curry or whatever it is that is their, is their favor. Um, awesome. But, you know, just things to try and keep morale going, keep people okay. Um, but it was by example. And I, you know, I, I can't commend highly enough my colleagues and, and particularly the, the people who lead and manage our homes, our, our managers and their deputies and our, and some of our nurses who really kind of supported their colleagues all the way through this. Let's take it from, say, March yeah. uh, when lockdown happened. What was the most challenging period since then from a personal perspective from yourself and then also from a professional perspective? They kind of probably overlap. We had our battles over PPE to begin with, um, yeah. where the government pipeline just wasn't robust and working. And so because we'd got this gold command going on and we knew how much PPE we needed, we were then having to buy it on the open market. Um, so we were paying five times the price for a mask because five yeah. times the price So masks normally are 20p. We were paying mm. a quid per mask um, and we're a charity. So it's not mm. like we're kind of, you know, come on, investors, put the money in because you need it. We, we just don't have that. But we had to make sure that we had enough. And then what we had to do, I remember distinctly one Sunday afternoon, because um, uh, I don't think any of us who were kind of at the centre of the organisation had a break from March through till June, probably. We were just seven days a week. You were on, you were on alert. And... Um, I remember one Sunday afternoon hearing that I got two car loads going down from two of our homes in Birmingham down to Gloucester because they had a major outbreak in Gloucester and they were kind of getting through PPE, but they didn't have enough because the local supplies weren't adequate for that. So that whole challenge around how much PPE was in the system was really, really problematic. But then from the data and from the symptoms that we were starting to see, we started to get a really strong impression that um, there was more to this than just the people who were presenting symptoms. So I don't know if you remember, but right back in the early days, the only way that mm. you got um, assessed was if you started to present symptoms of COVID. And even then it was difficult to get tests. So sometimes what would happen is somebody in a home would, get, would, would come down with symptoms or even five or six public health would send in two test kits. You would test two of them. They'd say, yeah, the others are bound to be COVID as well. So we had all these people presenting symptoms, the, the three core symptoms of the cough, um, the temperature, um, uh, and the, uh, but there was no proper testing going on. And we started to see that in homes where we, where we got nobody going in or out, people were getting poorly. And none of the staff were showing symptoms and none of the residents were showing symptoms. And then suddenly one day they were and there was no there was no understanding of how was this happening. So we started to think, is there something going on here about asymptomatic presentation of COVID mm. and that people are bringing it in? Don't look poorly, aren't, aren't feeling poorly, but are bringing it in. And if you're vulnerable, elderly with multiple comorbidities, then you may pick it up and it may be the worst for you by that point. And so we started to lobby for testing. And that just felt like such a hard, hard slog for not only us, but for others right across the sector in terms of trying to convince the powers that be public health, the government, that we desperately needed testing, because if we didn't have testing, we couldn't send the right staff home who needed not to be in work because they were contagious and we couldn't best isolate the people in our homes who were symptomatic, who, who did, who were infected. Um, and so you couldn't manage the infection robustly or as tightly as you would want to, if you knew you you could test people. And that felt, that felt 
just so hard because you felt like you weren't being heard. So uh, to, to put this into perspective, the government weren't issuing tests to you freely, but you discovered that people in the homes were getting sick and you had to lobby, invest time to just get the testing, to know that, yeah. look, so what, what was the impact of that? How many homes did become um, affected out of the 90? Um, during the first wave, probably, I think about uh, 70% of our homes had some wow. form of infection, some very acutely, some less so. So mm. it wasn't the same across all our homes. And um, we ended up just doing so much lobbying and publicity press work to try and get the testing in place so that we could see what's going on because it, it felt like it didn't need to be this bad. If we, if we could only know who was poorly, then we could manage the situation so much better. And I suppose out of that, um, we, did a, uh, we were approached by Newsnight um, to do a, a, a feature um, about the experience in care homes. And because we got all this data, they were really interested. Um, and we did, a, and it ended up being a half hour film. And the main reason that we did that was to try and A, show people just how bad this was if they didn't realize it already, but also to really try and lobby for the testing as well. Um, so uh, I, I caught that Newsnight um, feature on, and you mentioned that the treatment of the care sector and those within it uh, had basically experienced a real social injustice. Can you just talk a little bit more about that? As I said to you earlier on, the care sector was already in a poor state of repair in mm. terms of investment um, nationally and very disjointed. And um, we knew from the very beginning that the elderly were going to be some of the most vulnerable in society to COVID when it came. There had been a policy about trying to get people out of hospital into care homes even if they were COVID, and we had resisted that as an organisation. Um, even though people must have appreciated that if you put people who've got COVID into a care home full of very vulnerable elderly people, the mm -hmm. risks to those people is just ridiculously high. We um, were, we had had to fight so hard for, for PPE, and it just felt that um, older people were somehow seen as they have lived their lives. And, um, you know, I had some conversations with people where it was um, to, to the extent of, well, is, is this just bringing forward the inevitable slightly? Um, is this um, a merciful uh, end for people who are in quite a lot of pain or, or have lost all capacity in terms of dementia? And kind of I suppose it's a systemic ageism which is um you know, you've, you've you've had your life and therefore somehow you don't have the same value as as others in society and you know I think it was by the summer certainly by the end of June July roughly around 40,000 people had died as a result of Covid and half of those were in care homes. So half of all the people who died were in care homes. So I think the maths goes something like this. There are roughly around 400,000 people in care homes of which 20,000 died. Out of the remaining 66 million people in the UK, 20,000 people died. So, you know, the focus on supporting the most vulnerable hadn't been there and I get you know we were all learning as we went along and I get there was huge pressure on the NHS and the crisis that that was unfolding um, but we knew early on the kind of things that we needed to do this and testing was crucial and I did a documentary with the BBC2 on the science and Covid that I think was aired sometime in November and we'd been approaching um, the medical community with our data saying, you know, look, we, we, we see these patterns starting to emerge. 
that program highlighted they hadn't even talked to people in the sector. They'd been doing modeling on a, a kind of academic level rather than going out to the care sector and going, okay, so what's happening? Let's learn from what's happening. Let's model from what you're experiencing and see what it is that could actually impact. And certainly, you know, now we've, we, we got testing by probably June time um, in any kind of meaningful way. It spluttered during the summer a bit, but, but it became more and more robust. But that certainly helped us to then manage infection control so much more tightly because we knew who'd got it and we knew who hadn't. Obviously, you know, there were delays in only being tested weekly, which has increased now with the LFD testing. But, um, but yeah. Wow, I'm, I'm just engrossed in what you were saying. What, what was the biggest differences between what the, uh, the government was saying were symptoms and the ones that you presented um, from the science? Um, the, I mean, the government, the government were, were saying, you know, the kind of like the, three, the three core symptoms, but we started to see people, distinctly remember one of my regional directors saying, um, we're getting some people who are just collapsing. The, no other symptoms, they're just collapsing. We're really concerned about their health. They're ending up going into hospital. And actually when they get into hospital, they're being tested for COVID and they're showing that they're COVID positive, but they've, they've been not been presenting any of the core symptoms, temperature, cough, whatever, in that context. And I suppose what's hard with older people is they can, they can be presenting multiple symptoms for all sorts of reasons, but, you know, we we didn't know what effect COVID was actually having on their bodies to know what other symptoms may then be may then be being presented. Um, and so we just became very mindful, which is, you know, apart from apart, again, for the testing of it, it could be anything that somebody was presenting or not presenting. But unless you have some way of independently validating that through test, then you're they're really stuck. Do you think the government let the sector down? I don't think they responded as quickly to what we were telling them as they needed to. I think it's um, it's shocking. It's absolutely shocking. And, you know, um, there was a mass, I, I would say from the outside in, there was a mass attack on care homes, on media. A load of my, um, uh, from the media, a load of my clients were also getting uh, sort of, uh, approached for news stories, but the clickbait news story sort of sort of things. Um, but then there was a period when Clap for Carers uh, came about. What's your thoughts on the Clap for Carers initiative? Um, I think it was very hard in the early days, if I'm being very honest, that the, you know, I would never knock what the frontline staff in the NHS are doing. And I get that the government were just so worried about our hospitals being overwhelmed. But it just felt like we had chosen to, as a, as a country, um, embody all that was good as being the NHS. And it seemed to take quite a number of weeks before NHS and key workers kind of became the mantra. Um, and people were then you know, we then started to get whole police forces kind of gathered around our homes at night, flashing their sirens and clapping, <laughs> which was just, you know, phenomenal. Mm. Um, and local communities coming out to 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 applaud around our, our care homes. Um, but yeah, to begin with, it felt like we were in the shadows of the NHS. And that's not minimising but what they were doing. But, you know, when our staff aren't... Um, and I suppose there's the drama, isn't there? People know what a hospital is. Less people really understand what a, what a care home is or what it's doing. And I think, therefore, people couldn't make the, the connection of what it was that was going on in care homes, maybe. But certainly it was better towards the end of that whole kind of clapping for carers um, uh, movement. And it, and it was good to see that kind of level of validation. But it did feel very NHS-centric to begin with. Um, and I kind of, you know... In my heart was going, come on, come on, people! You need to recognise what what our carers, our care staff are doing here, day in, day out, in terms of this. And what did the care staff think about it when they were sort of going out and they were getting collapsed? I think I think there was a genuine sense of an appreciation of a moment, quite moving. I think for for many, um, because you know our our care staff 
live in the communities where our care homes are. And so actually to have your neighbours coming out and applauding what you're doing and valuing what you're doing is is, is a powerful thing. Um, and I think went a great, you know, a great deal of way to kind of make people feel bolstered. And I think along with that, we then got quite a lot of people kind of donating gifts to care homes, kind of boxes of biscuits, chocolates, flowers, things like that, which were all a word that somebody said to me fairly early on was we just feel we've been abandoned. Um, and uh, I think anything that made people feel less isolated and less abandoned was really appreciated um, by our by our colleagues. Um, and I think that certainly a lot of the relatives of our residents in our care homes have really helped to maintain that sense of you've not been abandoned or forgotten. I think it's been phenomenally hard for residents and their relatives, family and friends during this whole um, 10 month period, because every time you were in lockdown, you were having to limit or restrict the nature of the visits that could take place. And if you were perpetually going into lockdown uh, because you were going into outbreak, even because it's only you know, two cases constitutes an, out, an outbreak, staff or carers, that if you were perpetually going through that cycle, it meant that people just weren't seeing each other face to face. Um, for quite a considerable time and also people you know for many people they've learned to use Skype and they've learned to use Zoom and, and FaceTime and what have you but for some people that's been that's not been easy um, so I think all of that side of it has been really hard and I think our carers then have been trying to fill that place of intimacy and care and support that normally the relatives would do alongside the carers because they'd be coming in, you know, daily or a couple of times every week to see their their loved one. Um, and so our, our carers have been trying to reassure relatives, family and friends that their loved one is OK as much as possible. But then also in the home, providing that care, that kind of one to one, um, just being alongside people that makes people feel feel valued as well as doing all the care tasks that they have to do on top of that. Mm. So let's fast right forward. We're recording this in Jan of 2021. We're back in a national lockdown. What do you think needs to be done this time to protect the care sector and those in it? The challenge that we've now got is clearly getting everybody vaccinated, which we've kind of like had most of our homes visited now. And we've got the majority, the great majority of our residents, about 87 percent of our residents have, have had the vaccination, mm. which is really good. Awesome. Um, I'm concerned because we haven't really got information from public health and government about what the implications are of having pushed back the second dose. Um, by another nine weeks. So it was going to be three to four weeks. So you had to have it. Now it's going to be 11 to 12 weeks to, to have All it. Right. Um, and I get that the government made a decision that they wanted to spread the vaccine um, that we've got in the country as far and wide as we possibly could to get people at least with some level of um, protection. But with both the Pfizer and the Oxford vaccines, the challenge is that the first dose gives you a certain amount of protection. It's the second one that then tops that up to around the 90%. So my worry is that we've potentially got a nine-week period with people still with a lower level of protection, which I'm concerned about. The other bit that I think is really tricky is, and part of me gets it because we're still on a learning journey with this, is we don't really know what the vaccine will give us in terms of um, the way forward. So we think that the vaccine will minimise the severity of the symptoms that people experience, which will hopefully then reduce the mortality rate. There is some uncertainty as to whether it stops transmission at all. And it doesn't seem to be that you don't get it. You still get it, but it just doesn't have the same impact on you. But what does that mean then as to how we move forward? And particularly for us, what does that mean for our residents and their relatives in terms of them being able to see each other and have more um, intimate or less restrictive contact going forward? And I think we really need to, some guidance from government around this, because otherwise it feels like it's going to be pushed back 
onto the likes of ourselves to have to make that risk call and the guidance doesn't seem to be there to help us really know how that is going to work going forward. As chief executive at MHA, in a way, you're responsible for those you care for. You're accountable by the families, but also you're responsible uh, by, uh, to, the, to the staff. How personally taxing has it been on you? Um, I'm, I'm really lucky. I've got a really, really good team. Um, uh, on our leadership team for the organisation, and then the um, the the other managers across the organisation. It, it's it's not it's never felt um, lonely. Um, it's always felt we're in this together. We are a team, and when one of us has been having a less good day, the others have kind of rallied around and supported. And we've all had those days where you kind of just get up and go. Crikey, okay, and another day, and another day, and I think particularly during the first wave, you know, it, the amount of, um, I suppose, TLC we were giving to one another was was significant to make sure that we were all kind of keeping keeping going. I don't think it, it, you know, at the end of the day, the accountability falls on myself and then and then on my team. Um, I've got hugely supportive uh, network family myself, which is obviously what gets you through these kind of things as well, and. To be fair, our board have been brilliant. Um, the board of MHA have just been so supportive throughout um, in terms of their uh, understanding and their um, backing on all the decisions that we've made. Um, so yeah, no, it's it's been it's been okay, but you know, inevitably, it's been hugely um, just wearing. And I, th I think one of the things that we've been most concerned about all our colleagues across MHA is just the toll this has taken and that nobody really had has had a break since last March. You know, even when people have been off, they haven't been able to necessarily go anywhere. And even if they have been able to go somewhere, stuff's been playing through their minds in terms of what they've been going through or what they've got to face when when they come back. You know, the risk is when everybody's under pressure, people can go into their silos. And whether that's in your home or whether that's as care homes or whether that's at our central support functions, um, the need for everybody to feel that they're all knitted together and without each of them playing their part, we just can't do this unless we do it together. Um, so, yeah. I came across the Hidden Heroes campaign you guys done. Tell us a little bit about that and how did that come about? Basically, we captured these stories and then we use them as a kind of like a, a profile campaign within the organisation, but also put out onto social media just to say, you know, under the radar, all these little acts of kindness are going on, these random acts. One of the maintenance guys in, in, a, in a previous life had been a hairdresser. So he turned his hand to hairdressing again. So, you know, if you're in a, if you're in lockdown, when well, we all suffered from lockdown hair um, uh, uh, during during the whole period. But, you know, he was he was he was doing the hair of all the residents um, on top of the, the day job. And it was just those small gestures of people taking time out to do exceptional things that made a difference for individuals in their day-to-day -day lives and so you know it it deliberately wasn't you know somebody saved the life of somebody it was actually what's affecting the quality of people's lives day-to-day -day when you're in this very unusual and precarious situation and so yeah it was really really warmly received and we got it profiled around the place but the main thing I think was just to to share across the organization you know you're good you're good people, you're doing good things out there and you're making a real difference. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of that. And it's great to use videos, those imagery, because, you know, you need to try and combat the other messages that are going out there, that, which are not as positive. But what do you think the perception is of the sort of next generation of people that would have loved ones that require care on care homes? What do you think their perception is? I think... Um... So my observation would be that these days, most people go into a, into a care home because they need to. Um, back in the day, people may have gone into a care home because actually they thought that was uh, just somewhere where they might feel a bit safer um, and where they could be with other people if they were a bit on their own. I think... There is a general recognition now that people go into residential care 
particularly if they've got additional health needs, if they're very vulnerable in the community or if they are gradually losing capacity because they're living with dementia. So the role of relatives is even more acute now because often it's been because the network of the individual of the resident can no longer keep that person safe out in the community. And so um, we very much see that we're working with the whole family, with all our residents. But I think part of the government's role and work over the next period is to really look at, okay, what, what services do people need to help them stay in the community safely and well for as long as possible? And then what are the range of options that need to be in place and let's invest in them and fund them properly. And crucially, let's equip and value the workforce because you know you can't get away from the fact that my colleagues who work out in our homes are some of the lower paid um, members of the workforce nationally and although we pay the real living wage as an organization and are proud to do so you know it's it's still not what these people deserve but with the economy of managing care homes that's a real predicament unless the prices were to be super inflated so that you actually were able to pay people the wage that really they they deserve to do that because um, you know we're a charity we're not we're not making money um, any any money that we do make from surpluses or from our charitable income goes into investing in our services for our residents so there's nobody kind of creaming off any money there wouldn't be any advantage to it but it's a real challenge remunerating the workforce in the way that they should be and also then investing in their development in the way that you would want to and we're, we're doing it we're starting to do it we need to do it more um, there's a huge crisis in the social care workforce. I said earlier on, 112 vacant, 112,000 vacancies across the sector. Um, it needs to be seen as a career for people to go into who want to go into, you know, make it um, attractive for people to go into as well. What, what would you say to those people, those people that are the next generation of the workforce that may have just, you know, they they weren't really aware of care as a as a career, but they've probably heard about it now and realised there's a, you know, there's a profession there. What would you what would you say to those people considering a career in care? I would say if you are somebody who wants to make a difference in the day-to-day lives of older people, then care is the place to do it because you are, you are nurturing relationship. These are long-term relationships um, and you are adding to the quality of day-to-day life of the people that you're working on. And, and that is hugely rewarding. I mean, you know, in, in happier times, the joy when I go around and visit our care homes is, is kind of like amazing and palpable. And and the the zaniness and craziness of staff in terms of what they come up with to um, to keep uh, the residents kind of you know, engaged in, in what's going on and, and in life generally. I mean, even, you know, even during COVID, um, I got a video clip through where um, the staff team, I'm not quite sure how they've managed to do it, but they put on a pantomime inside the home, <laughs> fully costumed with face masks, of course. Yes. But, um, you know, with set, with scenery and, you know, they, you know, and the joy on the residents' faces, seeing this and, and being able to join in and all that kind of stuff was just phenomenal and you know throughout we've seen all sorts of you know like peter k style videos that people have made of staff then interacting with the residents uh, going around the homes and um yeah just some wonderful stuff so it's, it's that enhancing the quality it's, i mean it's why our, our strap line is live later life well it's about how you make that really happen on the ground and i think you know our staff just get such a buzz out of the relationship and the quality of experience that they're able to give to people. So your common, a common thread in your history has been the focus on people and compassion. What would you say the last 12 months has taught you about people and compassion? Um, man, have I been humbled? Um, uh, yeah, just, you know, when you see people, uh, putting themselves in harm's way to support others. So we had a a home in one part of the country that was really under it and a huge number of staff became poorly. And we ended up with another group of staff volunteering from a different part of the country, didn't know these colleagues at all, but they went down for two weeks and um, 
put themselves in harm's way in terms of this was before the vaccination program to go and support the residents in those homes. Um, just kind of depth of selflessness, you know, in, in the Newsnight film, Marcina, who is um, one of our senior carers at a, a home up in Blackpool, her son went to live with his grandparents um, because she didn't want him to risk catching the virus. Um, you know, a lot of people might walk away, but they just, my colleagues just, just didn't. And if ever I felt wobbly, I just kind of listened to another story of what was going on the front line, not only because of what they were enduring, but just because what they were, how they were living it. Um, so yeah, I've seen compassion um, writ huge, and I've seen uh, a real oneness between people, which has just been so affirming. Awesome, so we started the conversation, uh, sort of you sharing where was the sector in 2019? We've talked through 2020. Um, let's fast forward. In an ideal situation, what would you have liked to see happen by 10 years time? Where would the sector be then? Um, okay, I would like to see a, a sector where the workforce is remunerated and respected and there is a professional development approach to the sector in a way that there is in, in many others. I would want to see a sector that is, even if it's full of diverse providers, but is far clearer about what the offer is at different stages in life and, and a discussion with us as a country about how we're going to afford that and what priority we're going to give it. Because um, certainly at the moment, the true cost of care is not met in the adult uh, care sector particularly not in the elderly care sector. And I would want to see a properly supported and costed model, which wasn't lurching from financial crisis to financial crisis in terms of the monies available to do that. And then finally, I suppose my, my next big ask would be that there is, um, that social care no longer is considered as the handmaid to the, to the health service. Um, Health and social care are in one department in government, they're not in two. And the whole raison d'etre for that is to try and see this as a continuum, which overlaps and interplays. So people, if they need to go into hospital, then they come back out and they're supported in the community again. That there's not these cliff edges, which it, which it feels like there are at the moment, and where the respect between health and social care is far more on an equal footing. You know, I recognise that our health colleagues are working to save life and limb and very acute often, as well as doing then the community health care that they provided. But social care staff are providing day in, day out support to people, not necessarily in chronic or acute most of the time, but quality of life stuff. And I think getting that continuum better understood and better righted would be, you know, something that would mean that we've got a far better um, health and social care system, um, uh, but that feels a huge set of asks in terms of the money, the so the the workforce standing, and then the the join up between health and social care. Um, and I think the government, whether it's this government or the next government, um, and I would ask it's this government because I feel they really do do need to grapple and grasp this and deal with it. Mr Johnson said when he went into number 10 that he had a plan for adult social care that hasn't been shared in any shape or form and we recognise that we're in crisis but you know we're having to plan for how we come out of this at the moment and we really need to start hearing from government how they're planning that we're all going to come out of this and part of that coming out of it is a reform of the adult social care sector along the lines that I've said. Sam really appreciate your insights and your perspective for those who haven't seen check out the hidden heroes uh campaign loads of lovely positive stories sam any final words before we end no just thank you for the opportunity it's um it's interesting the longer this goes on to keep reflecting on the different moments and actually holding the whole story is really really important not just living in the moment uh, of what particular battle that you're facing today so no thank you been really helpful awesome thank you take care toby 
I completely agree with Sam's call to the government to support the care sector. The industry is only as good as its carers and we need them now more than ever. Thanks Sam for joining me on the show and thank you all at home for listening. Next week on Tea with Toby, I meet the incredible Tony Banks, founder and chairman of Bauhausi Care Group. Tony and I had a brilliant chat where I asked him about his regrets during the pandemic. Tony airs his honest assessment of the government's response, and we discuss what the real problem in the care sector is. Don't miss this episode, I'll see you there. Before we go, there's just a few quick notes. Make sure you subscribe to the Tea with Toby podcast so you automatically get notified about new episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. I want to know more about you and what you all think of the show. So be sure to send me your comments at toby at teawithtoby.com. Please check out our website, teawithtoby.com, where you can find out more about me, Toby, our sponsor, Meet My Brian, and what we do at Smooth Digital. I've started a newsletter that goes straight into your inbox. So do sign up at our website as well at teawithtoby.com. You've been listening to Tea With Toby, the podcast presented by me, Toby Eliosman, and produced by One Fine Play. From One Fine Play, James Bishop is the executive producer. Kazra Feruzia is the audio and visual engineer. Connor Foley is the producer and researcher. Additional creative support from Selena Christophers, Jade Cornish, and Miranda Lopez. This episode was recorded by Connor Foley. Thanks for listening to Tea with Toby. Tea with Toby.